Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Tuppence Middleton, a fantastic actor and star of so many brilliant films and TV shows, including Sense8, Disappearance at Clifton Hill, Downton Abbey, and one of my favourite IMAX cinema experiences ever. Jupiter Ascending. Hello, Tuppence. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you for, for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Looking through the films you've been in in the last few years, it's been such a diverse range of movies. Yeah, I've been really lucky in that respect. A lot of which actually seem to be either period or sci-fi. I don't know how that ended up happening. They're, they're kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. But really, as an actor, you just try to pick scripts that interest you, to pick characters that feel different to something you've played before. So it wasn't really an intentional kind of career plotting. It just happened that way. And I feel really lucky that um, I've got to try so many different genres and work with so many different types of directors. Yeah, total gift. Must be quite fun going from one sort of film to something totally different and then off to something totally, you know, it keeps it fresh, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think you always want something to challenge you that sort of takes you out of your comfort zone as an actor because otherwise I think it's so easy to get typecast in this industry especially I'd say much more in the UK actually um in in the US it feels like not that there's more opportunity but that the casting bracket is so much wider it feels like you can walk into a casting room and unless you show them otherwise they assume you can play anything whereas I think we we tend to pigeonhole people a little bit more in the UK so yeah I've been lucky to kind of work all around the world and film in some really cool places yeah I mean a couple of things I, I read out earlier you know Jupiter Ascending and Sense8 with the Wachowskis mm. I know they are people who really like to throw everything on screen but also shoot in lots of very different locations yeah they like to shoot in lots of different locations but they also really like to shoot if they can, always on location. Like I remember when we were shooting Sense8, we were all over the world. I think in se season two, it was almost like 16 different countries or at least 16 different cities all over the world. And there was one interior shot inside a living room or something that was in Cambridge. And we traveled to Cambridge to do it. And I just remember thinking, surely we can shoot this on a soundstage anywhere in the world. But she, but it was such an important thing for them in that series that everything was authentic and that each country we went to, we weren't kind of doing an impression of it, that we sh we shot in the real place as much as we could and we used local crews. And so it felt really um, international in that sense. As we're talking today, you're in two very different but highly acclaimed films of 2020, Mank and Possessor. I guess that sort of goes back to trying to choose this diverse, you know, slate of films as you're, you know, you're, you're working on all these different projects. What's really great about those two films is that I feel like uh, there are two directors at kind of different stages of their career. Obviously, you have David Fincher, who is kind of an auteur by this point and is actually doing something with Mank that is really different for him. I think it's a, a really um, new direction. And it's also such a passion project because his late father wrote the script and it's been something that's been in the works for many years. 
Um, so it was really great to work with him. And he's so established and so um, has kind of whittled filmmaking down to this fine art. And he has a very specific way of, of doing that. And then on the other end of the scale, Brandon Cronenberg is so kind of like fresh and exciting and edgy. And he's this really interesting new voice. And of course, he's made shorts before. And, and this is his second um, full length feature. But I think there's still so much more to come from Brandon. I think he's so modest about his talent, but he has a really interesting, complicated brain and is such a lovely person too. I think with, uh, especially, you know, being the son of David Cronenberg and I and I did a film where I acted with Dana, David Cronenberg. I didn't, um, I wasn't directed by him, but we were in scenes together. And what's really striking about the pair of them is that they're both so sweet and gentle and they they kind of, these strange dark films come out of their brains and it was just amazing to meet them and think, oh, you're just lovely and polite and so adorable, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always fun when you, you meet the people behind you know, these really striking films or you know, big horror films and, and they're often real, real sweeties. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's so funny. I, uh, I love that. Working with David Fincher must be pretty huge for you because I know you're a big film fan as well. He, he's one of those directors who was on my top five, you know, to work with of all time. So it was really exciting to get the call to actually go out to LA and film with him because I, I'd sent a tape off into the ether as you often do as an actor, a sort of self tape audition. And usually you never hear anything from it or, you know, you see months later, oh, I didn't get the part because there it is at the cinema. So you, um, you just kind of are so used to not getting the role or you're used to that kind of low level rejection throughout your career. So especially when something like a David Fincher film comes up, you immediately think, well, I immediately think there's no way, there's no way that's going to happen. So you kind of send off the tape, you do the best job you can. And I didn't hear anything for months. And then I was asked to retape for a different part. Um, and then two days later, I was doing a, a Zoom audition with David, which was like a, a mini taster of working with him because it was, I, I don't know how many takes we did, but it was probably north of 30. And it was, you know, a, a relatively long scene. And that was, it, it kind of went by in a whirlwind. I I pressed, um, you know, leave meeting on Zoom. And then it was suddenly like, oh, what just happened? I had no kind of, um, I was, my, my, my adrenaline was so high. But yeah, I found out I got the part a couple of weeks later and I was thrilled. And then I was flying to LA to do rehearsals. So it was really like a kind of pinch me, career moment the cast is incredible uh, in this film and it's even sort of you know quite small roles You're like oh my god it's that person it's quite fun going through the imdb page for it <laughs> for yeah that. there's there's a lot of really good turns you know a lot of great cameos <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're i think all of your scenes with gary oldman um yeah you know, uh, in, in this film again that must be another pinch me moment like <laughs> i'm starring alongside gary oldman in the david venture film oh just love gary he's just the best i mean He's really silly and really um, up for a laugh. And I th I had in my head that he was really method or something. I don't know why I thought that. Maybe it's because he's been living in America so long and I thought maybe he'd adopted that kind of style. But he's just really down to earth and, and you know, you don't have to call him mank in between takes. And he's just, he's just like, he's just very, um, he made it really easy for me because I think, you know, if you work with, actors like that they raise your game just by proxy you kind of end up being better in the scene so 
every time you get to work with someone like that, it's like, great, they're going to make me look good. <laughs> so this is based on, you know, real life Hollywood history. Is that something that, you know, you're interested in outside of, you know, being in the film, Mike? Is this, does this sort of scratch an itch for you? Yeah, I mean, I uh, grew up, I suppose in my late teens, I became interested in that kind of era of Hollywood. Actually, it started because <laughs> when I was younger, I was such a big Elvis Presley fan that I watched all of his often terrible films, but I was just in love with him. So that kind of uh, started off an interest in that period, particularly. And then um, and then I looked at all the kind of old classics, as I think you do when you're interested in, in the film industry or, or interested in becoming an actor. You kind of go through the the Audrey Hepburn, Marilyn Monroe canon, the Humphrey Bogart, you, you kind of do all of those. And then you kind of start to look outside of that and, and explore a bit deeper. And so, yeah, it was definitely uh, really interesting for me. And it's also because Citizen Kane is one of those films, which is sort of quintessential film education, um, film school, drama school, watch. It was one of those ones where actually, when I first watched it, I I felt not so much a love of it, but more an appreciation of it, I suppose, because I was sort of, I don't know, I probably in my teens when I first saw it. And there was a lot of things that went over my head a bit. And, and it was really nice to rewatch it as an adult. And especially while we were making Mank to see so many of the similarities, not only in the story, of course, but also in the way it's filmed and how Fincher was recreating some of those moments. And yeah, so so that that was uh, really great to see. And it's also so interesting reading about that golden age of Hollywood to see how much things have changed for the better. I mean, especially as a woman in this industry, you think, thank God I wasn't working at that time. It's just, um, you know, I feel very lucky that things have moved on and, and still there is some way to go. Although there's a lot of glamour and there's a lot of wonderful things about that period, in particular, the anonymity, I suppose, or, or relative privacy that you you uh, could have as an actor. Um, you know, uh, now, obviously, there's so many so much access to, to people's personal lives and paparazzi and all of that stuff. But aside from that, I think that we've made very big strides for the better. We have given you some homework. Yes, I love homework. <laughs> for this. I guess in 2020, it's been a good time to catch up on films in general. But for this, I was looking for a film that was under 90 minutes long. How did you approach this challenge? This was actually harder than I thought. I think initially, I would just have a list in my head, which I assumed were films of 90 minutes or less. And as I started to think and then look up the films, it was like, oh no, they're, they're more than 90 minutes. And sometimes it was only over by three minutes. And I was like, maybe I could just... And then I thought, no, that's not the rules, Tuppence. You have to play by the rules. So you have to find one that's under. So I, um, so then I went about looking and I also tried to think of something that was not only just under 90 minutes, but also was kind of felt like informative for me or influential for me. So I kind of whittled it down to a list of two, uh, which was quite hard to pick from. And then in the end, I went with the one that I went with. And what film did you choose for us today, Tuffins? I chose The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um... 
Our hero is Jack Skellington, a man from Halloween Town who becomes converted to Christmas as he sets to spread joy in the world. However, Jack's new mission leads him to kidnap Santa. It becomes clear that he is not really in tune with the Yuletide spirit. Produced and visualised by Tim Burton, this was the first full-length feature film to use stop-motion animation throughout. I guess that's sort of major beats of the plot. They don't mention other characters like Sally or the actual director of the film, but they do of course tell us that this was produced and visualised by Tim Burton, which is a big, big selling point, and he is the, the man who started it all off. Firstly, it's just a lovely, festive pick. I think I watch it every Christmas without fail, even as an adult. It's, it's probably the only film that I do that with, actually. Um, or maybe apart from The Snowman. I do like to watch The Snowman. The Nightmare Before Christmas, it's... I suppose I chose it because I always really loved stop-motion animation and puppets when I was younger. I was just obsessed. And I think this came out the same year as The Wrong Trousers, Wallace and Gromit. And I, um, I'm i from the West Country and I went to school in Bristol and Ardman Animation was based in Bristol. So that was something that we had quite a regional pride about, the Wallace and Gromit films. And so I'd kind of seen that and I'd seen Grand Day out before that. Because, um, you know, I was like, when this film came out, I was six, but I, I didn't watch this film until later, probably until I was about 10. So it felt like that was leading me slowly into the world of Tim Burton. And, and it was the first Tim Burton film uh, that, that, you know, he, he had created that I'd watched. So I watched that before, you know, Edward Scissorhands or Beetlejuice. And and I also think it was um, was kind of my first crush. You know, when people talk about Disney characters that they're in love with, even if they're animals, like I think Jack Skellington was my first love. I just, <laughs> the, so, he was so sad and so ready to be fixed and so unhappy with his life. And I I just remember being so jealous of Sally. I thought, wow, this is such a, a beautiful relationship. And actually, it, you know, although it's like, I guess most people would think it's like a, a family film or a kid's film. I think there's so, so many lovely things in it for adults too. I think that so much of it is about not feeling happy in your skin and being a misfit and wanting something more from your life or not not um, realising your true power until something makes you aware of what you have in life. And I think that's a really kind of lovely message because Halloween Town is full of these kind of misfits, these little creatures that are essentially scary, but they don't think they're scary. They're just doing their job. Their job is to celebrate Halloween every year. And so you have all these strange little characters, but I think it was a nice thing for a child to feel, to approach things that are scary and approach Halloween in a way where you get to know the characters and you don't feel afraid of them. You feel like you're on their side. And I think strangely, Christmas and horror are two, <laughs> is a great match. I feel like that that's like a, it's not an untapped genre, but I really love that. You know, when you find those two things together, I think there's, it's kind of every child's worst nightmare if something ruins Christmas, because Christmas is kind of one of those things during the year that everyone waits for. And it's the, the there's no nightmare bigger than, than Christmas being ruined or, or Father Christmas going missing or, you know, a skeleton leaving rats under your bed. <laughs> I think also, you know, Halloween and Christmas and in terms of being a child, they're two really big, exciting events that happen. You know, both of them are it's a change from the normal. You get to dress up, you get to put a tree up in the middle of your house, you know, it's it's different and um and it, it's quite exciting. So I think as a kid, you know, you really see how important both of these things are. 
And I think also for Halloween Town, like you're right, it's not it is sort of scary, but it's not scary. And I think as a kid, you really lean into like the gruesome stuff, don't you? You really kind of get drawn to the stuff that you're afraid of, and it actually really influenced my taste generally in films after that. I think so. So then, of course, a couple of years later, I, I discovered um, Edward Scissorhands and. That sort of <laughs> became. I, th- I feel like that still informed the aesthetic of my home. Like my house, my dream house is where Edward Scissorhands lives on the hill. And I think um, I, I remember being not very old, and my sister and I uh, staged a protest in the rain against my parents because we wanted to watch Beetlejuice because it was on the telly, and our parents wouldn't let us watch Beetlejuice because they said it was too scary. And I distinctly remember marching around our garden with these paper signs that were disintegrating in the rain, shouting, we want Beetlejuice, we want Beetlejuice. And my mum just standing in the window of the kitchen, just shaking her head like, no, not going to happen. And then we both kind of, we didn't get to watch it. And we both sort of slinked back upstairs into our bunk beds and then started to plot for how we could, like, you know, the next plan B, how can we watch it? And so I didn't watch it until another year after that. And then that sort of um, cemented my love for that kind of strange world. And I think also that stop motion animation um, in in that sort of quite childlike way felt to me a bit like a gateway drug to like the Brothers Quay, who I now love. This kind of very dark stop motion animation, which is uh, tackling much more adult themes. But um, yeah, I definitely see the link to how... I got there and then all of the stuff that I used to watch when I was growing up was, you know, I loved those 70s horrors. I loved Don't Look Now. I loved The Wicker Man, which was which was my very close second choice, actually, for this fest. I feel like it, it, it really opened up my eyes to this world of horror, which is strange because I am still the biggest wimp alive. Like, I... I cannot watch a horror movie alone before I go to bed. I'm... I'm that person who is still like, I'll see something in the shadows or I'll uh, be up all night thinking something's going to tug my foot at the end of the bed, um, especially zombies. So I, yeah, I'm. it's weird that I feel so drawn to it, but I think you always do that in life, don't you? Especially as children, but even as adults, we we lean into the things that, that scare us the most. I think you're right. This is a really good sort of formative, uh, I guess, genre film, you know, for the the future horror fans, because there's lots of horror elements in it, but they're, they're animated in such a way where they're just really lovable. Like Jack Skellington is a really identifiable character. Totally. You know, even though he is, you know, the Halloween king and, and he's, a, he's a Skellington. And I think that's just, you know, that just celebrates the craft behind this film. Like I, there's something going on in the background in every shot in the foreground all of the supporting sort of characters are really lively and and you could i mean they probably do you could make toys of every single one of them uh, and people would want to own them because each one is so beautiful yeah and it's it's that thing also as a child all of those holiday occasions are so important and when he gets into that little circle of trees and you see each of the holidays painted on the trees it's like well, we only ever explore Christmas and Halloween. And you, as a child, I remember seeing all these other doors flash by, like the Easter door. And um, I can't remember what the other door, maybe there's a Thanksgiving door. Or there's, uh, but you you just think, go into the other doors. What's in the other doors? Like they, they have these whole worlds where people are only aware. And I think it's kind of also a nice message where 
you know, you live in a world uh, which is familiar to you, but that doesn't mean that there are, aren't other ways of life which are um, going on and which are valid and which are different but exciting in another way. And I think that's kind of, there's so many like really clever sort of, not hidden messages, but kind of morals to the story, I think. Um, it's so important that, you know, just because someone's different, uh, that, that's not a bad thing. That's something to celebrate, but also that you have to um, celebrate the things about yourself, about the, the strengths and, and, the, um, and, and the things that are different about you, because they're also, there is a place for everyone and there, there, are, there are beautiful things about all of those character traits. For for me, this is a film that I've seen quite a lot, but it was only really rewatching it for this. I noticed all of the, the really great messages in the film. And I think, you know, that's just, this is such a good script. It's also like one of the only musicals I really like. Like you kind of forget that there is music in it, but every song is an absolute banger. It's just such a good soundtrack. And I remember... Um, reading that uh because uh, all of the songs are by Danny Elfman of course and he was a big Cab Calloway fan and I love Cab Calloway and it was only re-watching it recently that made me realize that the Oogie Boogie song is like it's a kind of a Cab Calloway song it's like it, it's a homage to his music but I I think the music is just amazing the lyrics are great I mean there's uh what is it there's one point where he says like there's children throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads. They're busy building toys and absolutely no one's dead. And it's like, that's such, that's an amazing line. I just think it's, um, they're so catchy and I've never actually uh, gotten to do it yet, but I always see that they have live um, orchestral performances of this uh, film and Danny Elfman sings all the songs and they play the film in the background. And I would love to go to one of those. I think it, that that's just such a great way to see the film because it's so fun and energetic. And I think it needs kind of a big audience to kind of cheer along with it, you know? When this is all over and, you know, people can properly go back to cinemas again, can you imagine the energy at like a live, oh. um, <laughs> a live musical performance alongside this film? Oh my God, yeah. I think everyone would just be so thrilled to be in a room with other people and enjoying something. I challenge anyone not to feel uplifted after this film. Of course, there's a darkness, but it's just, I, I think it, it makes me so happy when I watch it. And also I didn't realize, which this is really stupid of me. I suppose I'd never really looked it up, but I didn't realize that Sally uh, was voiced by Catherine O'Hara, but she's just, um, she's kind of the queen of Christmas films, isn't she? When I was rewatching this film, we also watched Home Alone. Um, oh yeah. So we did such a great, a great Catherine O'Hara double bill. <laughs> oh, that was, she's so great in that film. And, and, and also, you know, she has a great 
singing voice. I assume it's her singing voice too. Mm, I mean, it, it sounds actually, like yes, it's her. her. It's Catherine O'Hara voicing Sally Ann singing, and yeah. Danny Elfman sings for Jack, but yes, doesn't voice Jack. But doesn't voice Jack. Which I think at the time actually he was quite put out because he uh, he was one of the first collaborators on this film, and Tim Burton was like, yeah, no, you you should voice you should be Jack. When they got actually into doing it, you know, Danny Elfman is not an actor, so um, the director said the dialogue was just a bit wooden, but the songs were great, so they they had to sort of sub him out. But it's crazy, isn't it? Because you don't actually hear that. I mean, I don't hear that there's a difference between the the talking voice and the singing voice when I was watching it. I, I, I remember hearing that, but there's you don't notice it at all. But that's what made me look up if Catherine O'Hara was actually singing as well, because it's so seamless with Jack. But no, 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 she's, she's got a great singing voice. And it's so funny. I think that there's so many great characters in it. And one of my favourites, actually, is just the very overly anxious mare who has two faces that switch between kind of um, absolute happiness and total devastation um, on the, you know, turn of six months. And I just think he's so wonderful. And when, when you watch a character like him, you, you think, oh, they're really trying to humanise these scary characters. And it's, it's really smart for, you know, kids who who get scared really easily of the monsters under their bed or, or whatever. You, you get to see these characters and think, no, actually, they're they're really nice. They're just they're just trying to do their job and and they they have worries like everyone. You know, he wants to plan Halloween and it's not going to plan. So he's he's really anxious. But I love that guy. I think he's uh, he's one of my favorites for sure. You know, the dialogue is great. The songs are great. Just the visuals tell the story as well. You could probably watch the film on mute and still, whilst you would miss this amazing soundtrack, you'd still be able to tell what's going on. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's really great too for kids who are watching it when they're a little bit younger. I mean, maybe you don't want your kids to watch it because it can be quite scary. But yeah, we follow stories. I mean, of course, a film's a visual medium, so we follow so much of it without the need for sound. I, I think I have a real appreciation for stop-motion animation because I'm I'm kind of obsessive. And so I have a uh, like an unending amount of patience for things that are really slow, really slow and precise. And I love to do things like that myself. I remember when I was, um, the first time I ever went to uh, Los Angeles to, you know, go and do meetings and do acting things. Um, I I was staying in an Airbnb from this local woman and I was looking after her cat. I don't know how I, that ended up happening, but that was part of the deal. I got a discount if I looked after a cat, which I thought was initially great, but then I realised the cat was quite needy and I needed to um, be inside with it quite a lot. And um, I had really bad jet lag the first two days I was there. And this woman had loads of strange things around her apartment, like loads of weird little figurines. And I was so bored and I had kind of an early version of a Mac. And um, on my iMovie, I made a very um, primitive stop motion from all of these strange little characters. And I remember sending it to my family back home being like, I'm jet lagged and bored. And they were like, this is way too much effort for to, to, <laughs> just to send to us. This is like ridiculous. What are you doing? What are you doing with your time? Use it wisely. But I find that kind of thing so rewarding and so uh, so much fun. So when I see something like the Nightmare Before Christmas, which is actually real and good. And imagine the work that went into that and 
and watching those people create those characters step by step by step, second by second, frame by frame, I just oh, it makes me very happy. <laughs> so I, I love that there are people dedicated enough to do it because you know you could do this film probably quicker and easier and cheaper, you know, in hand drawn animation or something else. But no, because this is the first as well. No one had ever made a feature length stop motion animated film. That is crazy. I guess because it just takes so long and. I think um, by this point, Tim Burton had made two shorts, I think, uh, stop motion. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think e even now with uh, the kind of digital technology, I think having advanced so much, I still think there's nothing quite like stop motion animation. You don't get the same effect from regular animation. There's just something I think is so special about that. It's re it really is an art. And I think it's it kind of um, the way that they're animated communicates in a way that feels almost more human than actual animation because you can see the the 3D nature of their bodies. You can see them expressing in a way that feels like you can really touch them. Me on vacation on Christmas Eve. Where are we taking them? Where? To Oogie Boogie, of course. There isn't anywhere in the whole world more comfortable than that. And Jack said to make him comfortable, didn't he? Yes, he did. Haven't you heard of peace on earth? and goodwill toward men? Now! <laughs> With Night Before Christmas, the journey for it to go onto screen was was quite a long one. It was based on an idea Tim Burton had when he was just starting out as an animator at Disney. His first job was, you know, being a background animator on, on I think, Fox and the Hound in the early 80s. Oh, wow! Uh, <laughs> but that's where he met the eventual director of, of this film, Henry Selick. They were both doing the same job. And I think he pitched it after the success of his his first short, Frankenweenie, uh, which is also stop motion. And Disney were like, nah, it's not us. <laughs> <laughs> so he walked away from it. And then he went on to become this hugely successful director making Batman and Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice, Edward yeah. Scissor. And then everybody wanted a slice of Tim Burton. So uh, I think he approached Disney saying, can I buy back my idea for Night Before Christmas? And they said, buy it back. We want to make it now. <laughs> wow. That's so amazing, too, that he that he started off at Disney. That's like, I, I love that, that because it's kind of he is such a unique voice. And I think for he's kind of like the Jack Skellington. He's like he doesn't feel quite at home there. He knows that he can do this. And he knows that um, he wants to make films and he animation is interesting to him, but he doesn't feel quite like settled somewhere. So that doesn't surprise me. Maybe he put himself into Jack. <laughs> you can sort of see it in some of his other characters, like Edward Scissorhands, especially, you know, this other sort of outsider. So I think they both share a screenwriter. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I remember actually speaking about my Jack Skellington crush. I um, I remember once saying to a friend at school, that I had big crush on Edward Scissorhands. And they were like, oh, you mean Johnny Depp? And I was like, no, Edward Scissorhands. And they said, do you know, do you remember what Edward Scissorhands looks like? And I said, yes. And I remember like on really early computers in school, my friend getting up a picture, full screen of Edward Scissorhands at his most strange and saying, so you have a crush on Edward Scissorhands, not Johnny Depp. And I was like adamant, yes, I definitely do. I think how sad it is to have scissors for hands and he he's just lonely and he wants a, a friend and I oh, couldn't bear it. Yeah, so I think Tim Burton's very good at um, creating these sort of um, characters which 
make you want to take care of them. <laughs> yeah, very sympathetic. And, and I think everybody can relate to that sort of outsider feeling in some way, shape or form. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> kind of this universal theme. Uh, but yeah, both both films written by Caroline Thompson, who was Danny Elfman's partner at the time. And it sort of makes sense that so much of the story is told through the songs, um, considering they're sharing a house, talking about the story and trying to make this work. <laughs> oh, all very incestuous. I love it. <laughs> classic classic yeah. film industry yeah exactly yeah doesn't surprise me <laughs> do you have a favorite scene you said you watch this film every year at christmas is there a scene you're particularly looking forward to when you're re-watching this film well i really love actually when when he's tried to take over christmas and he gets shot down and then he's kind of draped over this headstone in a graveyard in this tattered santa claus outfit and he kind of it's almost like he's rising from the dead and then realising who he is. And it's this epic song where he's taking back control and realises he has to save Christmas and that he's the pumpkin king. He's the king of Halloween. This is his calling. And it took this kind of disaster of him getting shot out of the sky for him to realise. And it's just like this epic moment where you really get behind him and I also really like where he's trying to make Christmas in his house. He shuts himself away, uh, doing all of these experiments. And Sally unstitches her limbs and jumps out of the window and then uh, takes a little package over to him, like a care package. I think it's really sweet because at the end of all of it, yes, it's about this skeleton trying to find his calling and, and who he really is, but it's also a love story. And... I really love that, that he kind of gets the girl in the end and these two misfits, you know, finally find each other. So, um, yeah, it's really hard to pick a favourite scene, but those two are, are definitely up there. Especially, I think, because the film zips along. Like, there's no fat on this film at all. And it it sort of feels like, you know, you, you could put it on TV for, I'll just watch five minutes and then you've seen the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no there's no moment where you um, go and make a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I think the uh, the "What Have I Done" song ballad, where he's you know reflecting on his decisions, um, is is so good. Uh, and you're right, there is this. It's an amazing love story at the heart of it. Um, you know, every he's got everything he needs at home, and he's got this you know amazing person that he's not really paid attention to until now. After yeah. he's had his folly being Santa. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And I think obviously Tim Burton has this fascination with Frankenstein too, because Sally is this kind of monster that uh that the doctor has made and uh, for company and actually she she does something completely other to what he wanted or expected and and um falls in love with jack but yeah so you see lots of those kind of influences too but i just think it's who doesn't love a love story and a love story with Christmas and horror thrown in is okay by me. I think when I was a kid, you know, love stories sometimes when you're a kid can sort of turn you off a little bit from the film. But because this is a, it's a zombie falling in love with a skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> and this sort of annotating, you're like, it's cool, you know. I think it's cool. you know, as, a, as a young boy, I was like, yeah, I'm into this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not kind of gross. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it sort of is. Anyway, yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's gross in a different way, but it's yeah. kind of cool, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I love how stylized Santa is in this film as well. I think it's quite, Santa looks quite badass, even though he's, you know, very lovely still. He's not a, a mean Santa at all. He's traditional, brilliant Santa. But yeah. he's got that Tim Burton filter over him. Uh, he's yeah. got a lot of attitude. <laughs> he is actually really badass, I think, because he he doesn't, you know, he stands up to um, Mr. Oogie Boogie in, uh, when he's, his life's being threatened. He's, uh, 
yeah, he's no fool. And then he does save Christmas, you know. Very uh, confidently. Like, of course very I confidently. Of course I can. In, <laughs> in five minutes, it's fine. I've got this. I, yeah, he's, uh, he's great. I really like that. Because also you can't, I think in, in a film, which a lot of kids are watching, you can't portray Santa Claus as bad because he's got to be the hero, even though Jack's the hero. But, you know, that could be two heroes. <laughs> As part of your uh, commitment to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest, one of our guest curators, you do get to show this film at a cinema. I will give you a print of the movie and a venue, but it's totally down to you to decorate it, to theme the venue. How would you like to immerse your audience into this uh, into this screening? You know what? I actually, I'm going to take it out of a real cinema and I'm going to put it in Kensal Green Cemetery as an outdoor nighttime screening in the winter preferably raining, bring your own poncho and um, bring your own Nightmare Before Christmas themed poncho. And I think I would serve pumpkin pie and pumpkin spiced lattes (laughs) and uh, mulled wine. And it would be a kind of wintry Christmas gothic bonanza and everyone would be encouraged to dress up as characters from the film. Oh, wow. This is a, <laughs> this is a really good film, actually, to do a theme screening of. There's so many hooks yeah. and possible, possible sort of things. But yeah, a dress-up screening of this would, be, uh, would go down very well. Yeah, and I think I just... I really love outdoor screenings and I, I'm, I've always been fascinated by the... Um, I think they call they call them the Magnificent Seven or the kind of seven big graveyards in London, which include you know Highgate and West Brompton and and Kensal Green is is um, probably one of my favourites. I just think it's completely beautiful and huge, and there's a a great kind of house, probably not called a house, probably called a you know I don't know mausoleum or uh, the catacombs or whatever, in the centre of um, the graveyard and I think that would be a great place to put up a giant screen. I love this you've done like a location recce already. You've yeah, got yeah I've done a recce out. I've done a recce yeah. <laughs> you've done the health and safety check. It's yeah, all good yeah, to go. yeah it's good, good to go. <laughs> you've yeah. got the permit. Yeah. <laughs> If it's an outdoor screening, pumpkin spice lattes. Yeah, uh, yeah. What a dream. And, you know, it might be cold, but the film is only 78 minutes long. So, yeah. you know, it's not you don't get it too Just cold. Just dress warm. Dress exactly. warm. Layer, layer up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you could invite one special guest to the screening to maybe introduce it or interview afterwards, who would, who would you like to see on stage? You know what? Save actual Jack Skellington being able to come. I, I think he's probably going to be busy. Um, I would say I'd be really interested to hear... The Brothers Quay take on it because oh, wow. um, I really like their films. And I think um, as stop motion animation aficionados, I, I'd love to to hear what they had to say about it. And uh, also it'd just be cool to meet them because I love their work. <laughs> OK, wow, there we have it. The Nightmare Before Christmas is in our 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Uh, I think it's our first, definitely our first graveyard screening, maybe our first outdoor screening as well. Oh, great. Um, also, this film is it's our first musical in, in the festival. Wow, a lot of firsts. A lot of firsts. This is a, yeah. it's a groundbreaking <laughs> screening. I'm yes. really surprised that we've been doing this podcast for almost two, uh, over two years. This is, in my eyes, one of the, you know, the greatest under 90 minute films ever made and yeah. it's taken this long to be picked so thank you so much for contributing it oh happy to help where can people keep up to date with what you're up to on on social media i am on instagram at two pence middleton and on twitter 
at Tuppence. It's amazing that you got the at Tuppence. I know that was uh, that was a good day. <laughs> no numbers, no underscores. Clean. No underscores. No. Yeah, yeah. Just clean. It's pure. <laughs> Mank and Possessor are both streaming now, but I, I guess yes. most of your your work is now on streaming. I think so. I think um, available on various platforms, <laughs> wherever you can find it. Thank you so much, and uh, yeah, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Lovely to chat. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We are a proud member of the Stripped Media Network and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 